Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. Do you believe that uh, there should be a death penalty? A death penalty? Yes, for someone who commits a murder or something like that. Aren't we all born to die? We're but born with a death in penalty. In a gas chamber? In a gas chamber. Well, uh, or by hanging or by an electric chair. Uh, I see what you're, you're searching for. Should uh, there be a supreme penalty for committing a crime? What do you think? I'm the one who's asking you. Yeah, but if I don't give you the answer that you want... doesn't matter to me. It doesn't it's matter. It's your opinion. Well, uh, I don't have the authority to say anything like that. You have the authority to believe. I believe what I'm told to believe. Don't you? September 5th, 1975, the family rocketed back into national attention when Screaky Fromm attempted to assassinate U.S. President Gerald Ford. The attempt took place in Sacramento, to which she and Manson follower Sandra Good had moved to be near Manson while he was incarcerated at Folsom State Prison. A subsequent search of the apartment shared by Fromm, Good, and a family recruit turned up evidence that, coupled with later actions on the part of Good, resulted in Good's conviction for conspiring to send threatening communications through the United States mail and transmitting death threats by way of interstate commerce. The threats involved corporate executives and U.S. government officials vis-a-vis supposed environmental dereliction on their part. Fromm was sentenced to 15 years to life, becoming the first person sentenced under United States Code Title 18, Chapter 84, from 1965, which made it a federal crime to attempt to assassinate the President of the United States. In December of 1987, Fromm, serving a life sentence for the assassination attempt, escaped briefly from federal prison camp Alderson in West Virginia. She was trying to reach Manson who she had heard had testicular cancer. She was apprehended within days. She was released on parole from Federal Medical Center in Carswell on August 14, 2009. In a 1994 conversation with Manson, Prosecutor Vincent Bogolsi 
Catherine Scher, a one-time Manson follower, stated that her testimony in the penalty phase of Manson's trial had been a fabrication intended to save Manson from the gas chamber, and that it had been given under Manson's explicit direction. Scher's testimony had introduced the copycat motive story, which the testimony of three female defendants echoed, and according to which the Tate-LaBianca murders had been Linda Kasabian's idea, in a 1997 segment of the tabloid television program Hard Copy, she implied that her testimony had been given under a Manson threat of physical harm. In August of 1971, after Manson's trial and sentencing, Cher had participated in a violent California retail store robbery, the object of which was the acquisition of weapons to help free Manson. In January of 1996, a Manson website was established by a latter-day Manson follower, George Stimson, who was helped by Sandra Good. Good had been released from prison in 1985 after serving 10 years of her 15-year sentence for the death threats. When he was called as a witness at the sanity hearing for four other Manson associates in 1973, Bobby Beausoleil said that he and they would not conform to society's standards of sane behavior, saying, quote, I'm at war with everybody in this courtroom. It's nothing personal, but the world has been gaddling at my brothers and sisters. As long as they are ripping off our world, our friends, and our children, you better pray I never get out, unquote. Beausoleil's initial parole suitability hearing was held on August 15, 1978, and prior to 2019, he had a total of 18 suitability hearings that each ended in the parole board finding him unsuitable for parole. Beausoleil attracted some women admirers while in prison, and in 1980, he married a 21-year-old fan. Within a year, she sought to annul the marriage, saying he had also been involved with other women. On April 15, 1982, while incarcerated, Beausoleil was stabbed by other prisoners. After that, he reportedly began to lose his sense of loyalty to Manson and distanced himself more from the family, ceasing to justify their actions and expressing more regret. In 1994, he was transferred to the Oregon State Penitentiary at his request. After he had married a woman from Oregon and fathered four children, he was then transferred back to California in 2015 to the California Medical Facility at Vacaville following the death of his wife and a disciplinary infraction in the Oregon prison. In a 1998-99 interview in Seconds magazine, Bobby Beausoleil rejected the view that Manson ordered him to kill Gary Hinman. He stated that Manson did come to Hinman's house and slash Hinman with a sword, which he had previously denied in a 1981 interview with We magazine. Beausoleil stated that when he had read about the Tate murders in the newspaper, quote, I wasn't even sure at that point. Really, I had no idea who had done it until Manson's group were actually arrested for it. It had only crossed my mind, and I had a premonition, perhaps. There was some little tickle in my mind that the killings might be connected with them, unquote. In the Wee Magazine interview, he had stated, quote, When the Tate-LaBianca murders happened, I knew who had done it. It was fairly certain, unquote. Part of the reasoning for denial of his parole in 2016 was said to have been recorded music for sale without permission from the California authorities, 
although while he had been in Oregon, authorities there had given him permission to do that. According to Gary Hemmons' cousin, Kay Hemmons Martley, and Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah Tate, who had been involved with the proceedings and were opposed to his release. On a January 3, 2019 panel of commissioners of the California Board of Parole, they recommended that Beausoleil be freed on parole. In recommending parole, the panel cited Beausoleil's youthful offender status as being a mitigation to the severity of the crime and stated that during his nearly half-century of incarceration, he had devoted himself to creativity and pro-social growth, gradually maturing into a person expressing compassion and empathy. The Los Angeles District Attorney's Office disagreed, calling the panel's recommendation, quote, unfortunate. Kay Martley and Deborah Tate also continued to oppose the granting of parole, with Martley saying that, quote, this man does not belong outside the walls of prison, unquote. Deborah Tate repeated the allegations that Beausoleil had been violating prison rules by profiting from the sale of his music and art while in prison, and stated a petition on change.org to ask the governor to deny him parole. Beausoleil's attorney responded to the comments about his music and art activities by saying that, quote, everything he has produced so far was done with the full permission of the warden of his prior institutions, unquote. As had been the case previously for several other Manson associates, the parole recommendations was denied by the governor of California. Governor Gary Newsom reversed the parole board's recommendation and denied Beausoleil's parole on April 26, 2019 saying he felt that Beausoleil's release could still pose a danger to society. From 1974 onwards, Susan Atkins said that she was a born-again Christian after seeing a vision of Jesus Christ in her cell. She became active in prison programs, teaching classes, and received two commendations for assisting in emergency health interventions with other inmates, one of which was a suicide attempt. Atkins married twice while in prison. Her first marriage was to Donald Lee Leisure on September 2, 1981. Atkins became the Mercurial Leisure's 35th wife, but the two divorced after he sought to marry yet again. She married a second time in 1987 to a man 15 years her junior, James W. Whitehouse, a graduate of Harvard Law School who represented Atkins at her 2000 and 2005 parole hearings. He maintained a website dedicated to her legal representation. During Atkins' 2000 parole hearing, Sharon Tate's sister Deborah read a statement written by their father Paul, which said in part, quote, 31 years ago I sat in a courtroom with a jury and watched with others. I saw a young woman who giggled, snickered, and shouted out insults, even while they testified about my daughter's laugh breath. She laughed. My family was ripped apart. If Susan Atkins is released to rejoin her family, where is the justice? Unquote. In April of 2002, she told the Los Angeles Times reporter of her work to discourage teenagers from idolizing Manson and her hope of someday leaving prison to live in Laguna Beach, California. In 2003, Atkins filed a lawsuit in federal court claiming that she was a, quote, political prisoner due to the repeated denials for her parole requests regardless of her suitability. On June 1st, 2005, Susan Atkins had her 17th parole hearing. This resulted in a three-year denial. She was given less than six months to live 
and subsequently requested a compassionate release from prison. In June, Atkins' attorney, Eric P. Lample, stated that Atkins' condition had deteriorated to the point that she was paralyzed on one side, could only talk a little bit, could not sit up in bed without assistance. The hearing was attended by various family members of the victims, including Deborah Tate and members of the Sebring family, and they requested that her parole be denied. She received a four-year denial. In April of 2008, it was revealed that Atkins had been hospitalized for more than a month with an undisclosed illness that was subsequently reported to be a terminal brain cancer. An application for compassionate release based on her health status was denied in July of 2008, and she was denied parole for the 18th and final time on September 2nd, 2009. Atkins died of natural causes 22 days later on September 24, 2009 at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. At the time of her death, she was California's longest-serving female inmate. Patricia Kremlinkle remained loyal to Manson and the family, but over time began to break away from them. In distancing herself from Manson, she has maintained a perfect prison record and received a bachelor's degree in human services from the University of La Verne. She is active with prison programs such as Alcohol Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And along with these involvements, she has taught illiterate prisoners how to read. Reportedly, Kremwinkle writes both poetry and music, plays the guitar, plays on a prison volleyball team, and gives dance lessons. Kremwinkle's initial parole consideration hearing was held on July 17, 1978, during a 2004 parole hearing, when asked who she would place at the top of the list of people she has harmed. Patricia Kremwinkle responded, quote, myself. In an interview conducted by Diane Sawyer in 1994, Kremwinkle stated, quote, I wake up every day knowing that I am a destroyer of the most precious thing, which is life, and I do that because that's what I deserve, is to wake up every morning and know that, unquote. During that same interview, she expressed the most remorse for what she did to Folger, telling Diane Sawyer, quote, that was just a young woman that I killed who had parents. She was supposed to live a life, and her parents were never supposed to see her dead, unquote. In that same interview, she said that Manson was, quote, absolutely lying about not ordering the murders. She said, quote, there wasn't one thing done that was even allowed to be done without his express permission, unquote. She was denied parole following that hearing because, according to the panel, Krenwinkel still posed a, quote, unacceptable risk to public safety. At her January 2011 hearing, the two-member parole board said that the 63-year-old Krenwinkel would not be eligible for parole again for seven years. 
The panel said that they were swayed by the memory of the crimes, along with 80 letters which came from all over the world, urging Krenwinkel's continued incarceration. In Krenwinkel's parole hearing on December 29, 2016, the decision was postponed to investigate the defense claim that Krenwinkel was suffering from battered woman syndrome at the hands of Manson during the time of the murders. Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah Tate, said how Krenwinkel, quote, totally minimized her actions and blamed everything on other people the whole hearing, unquote. She goes on to talk about how Krenwinkel was not a victim because she chose to participate in the murders and stay with the family so that she could be accountable for her actions. The parole hearing resumed on June 22, 2017, when the 69-year-old Krenwinkel was denied parole. She will be eligible to have another parole suitability hearing in 2022. After her 2017 review, Kremwinkel has been denied parole 14 times. Kremwinkel is still incarcerated and is now at the California Institute for Women in Corona, California. Van Houten was granted a retrial in 1977 due to the failure to declare a mistrial when her lawyer died. Her defense argued that Van Houten's capacity for rational thought had been diminished due to LSD use and Manson's influence. The jury could not agree on a verdict. According to what the jury foreman later told the reporters, they thought that it was difficult on the basis of the evidence to determine whether Van Houten's judgment had been unimpaired enough for a verdict of first-degree murder rather than manslaughter. It was reported in the news media that because of time already served, Van Houten could go free that year if she was convicted of manslaughter. By law, prosecutors are not allowed to mention the possibility of a defendant being released on parole when arguing for a murder rather than a manslaughter conviction because it is considered highly prejudicial to the defendant. The prosecution in 1970 and 71 had emphasized that the motive had nothing to do with robbery and the killers ignored valuable pieces of property. At Van Houten's second retrial, the prosecution, who was now being aided by a specialist in diminished responsibility, altered the charges by using the theft of food, clothing, and small sums of money taken away from the house to add a charge of robbery whereby the felony murder rule tended to undermine a defense of reduced capacity. She was on bond for six months before being found guilty of first-degree murder. Van Houten was given a life sentence that entailed eligibility for parole, for which the prosecutor said she would one day be suitable. After receiving her 13th parole rejection, in which the hearing concluded that she posed, quote, an unreasonable risk of danger to society, unquote, Van Houten took legal action. Judge Bob Krug ordered the board to rehear the application because their reasoning turned solely on the unalterable gravity of her offense and effectively gave her life without parole, quote, a sentence unauthorized by law, unquote. The judgment was overturned by a higher court which said that although parole hearings must consider evidence for an inmate being rehabilitated, a hearing had the discretion to deny parole based solely on the review of the circumstances of the crime if, quote, some evidence supported their decision. In 2013, Van Houten was denied parole for the 20th time at a hearing, 
In announcing a decision to deny parole, the commissioner of the hearing board said that she had failed to explain how someone of her good background and intelligence could committed such a cruel and atrocious murder. On April 14, 2016, a two-person panel of the California Parole Board recommended granting Van Houten's parole request, but California Governor Jerry Brown vetoed the release on the grounds that, quote, both her role in these extraordinarily brutal crimes and her inability to explain her willing participation in such horrific violence cannot be overlooked and lead me to believe that she remains an unacceptable risk to society if released, unquote. On September 29, 2016, Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge William C. Ryan issued an 18-page ruling upholding the governor's reversal earlier in the year of the parole board's decision to release Van Houten. Ryan wrote that there was, quote, some evidence that Van Houten presents an unreasonable threat to society. On December 21st, the California Supreme Court denied Van Houten's petition to hear the case. Van Houten has long since renounced Manson. She has expressed her remorse for the crimes, and after her 2013 parole hearing, her attorney argued that her volume system was completely different from what it was in 1972. She let it be known that she, quote, takes offense to the fact that Manson doesn't own up, unquote, to his role in the murders. She told Vincent Bogolsi, the man who sent her to prison, quote, I take responsibility for my part, and part of my responsibility was helping to create him, unquote. She has written several short stories, once edited the prison newspaper, and did some secretarial work at the prison. Van Houten again was recommended for parole on her 21st parole hearing on September 6, 2017. The two-member panel found that Van Houten had radically changed her life in more than 40 years that she has been incarcerated. Governor Jerry Brown again denied her parole on January 19, 2018. Her legal team stated that they would fight the decision. On June 29, 2018, Van Houten's parole was once again vetoed. Quote, unless the inmate can demonstrate that there is no evidence to support the governor's conclusion that the inmate is a current danger to the public safety, the petition fails to state a prima facie case for the release and may be summarily denied, unquote. was cited by the same judge, William C. Ryan. On January 30, 2019, during her 22nd parole hearing, Van Houten was recommended for parole for the third time. But in June 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom overruled the parole board's recommendation, claiming the 69-year-old Van Houten was still a, quote, danger to society, and that she, quote, had potential for future violence, unquote.
According to his prisoner outreach website, Watson converted to Christianity in 1975. Will You Die For Me, Watson's autobiography, as told by prison chaplain Ray Hostra, was published in 1978. In 1979, he married Christian Joan Zweig. Through conjugal visits, they were able to have four children, three boys and one girl. But those visits for life prisoners were banned in October of 1996. After 24 years of marriage, Zweig divorced Watson after meeting another man in 2003. Zweig and Watson remained friends. He had become an ordained minister in 1981 and graduated from California Coast University in 2009 with a B.S. in business management. In August of 1982, a Southern California-based group, Citizens for Truth, submitted some 80,000 petition signatures and several thousand letters opposing Watson's parole. The group received support from Doris Tate, the mother of victim Sharon Tate, the group was asking the California Board of Prison Terms to deny parole for Watson. In later years, the group, along with Doris Tate and her daughters, Patricia and Deborah, submitted petitions with more than 2 million signatures. In 2012, Watson disputed a request to release recordings of conversations with his attorney. The recordings became part of a bankruptcy proceeding involving the deceased attorney's law firm. Members of the Los Angeles Police Department said that they believed the recordings might contain clues about unsolved murder cases involving the Panson family. Watson asked the presiding judge to allow police to listen to the tapes but not take possession of them. The LAPD did acquire the tapes, which allegedly contained Watson confessing to other murders, but reported that they did not contain any new information. In September of 2014, Richard Pfeiffer, an attorney for Leslie Van Houten, said that he was considering subpoenaing the tapes to look for information that might help Van Houten in her next parole hearing. Watson's own minimum eligible parole date was November 26, 1976. He has been denied parole 17 times since then, including two stipulations. He was most recently given a five-year denial of the parole board hearing on October 27, 2016. He remains incarcerated at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. In January 2008 segment of the Discovery Channel's Most Evil, Barbara Hoyt said that the impression that she had accompanied Ruth Ann Morehouse to Hawaii just to avoid testifying at Manson's trial was erroneous. Hoyt said that she had cooperated with the family because she was, quote, trying to keep them from killing my family, unquote. She stated that at the time of the trial, she was, quote, constantly being threatened. Your family's going to die. The murders could be repeated at your house, unquote. On March 15, 2008, the Associated Press reported that forensic investigators had conducted a search for human remains at the Barker Ranch the previous month. Following up on long-standing rumors that the family had killed hitchhikers and runaways who had come into its orbit during the time at Barker, the investigators identified, quote, two likely clandestine grave sites and one additional site that merits any further investigation, unquote. Though they recommended digging, CNN reported on March 28th that the Inyo County Sheriff, who questioned the methods they employed with search dogs, had ordered additional tests before any excavation. On May 9th, after a delay caused by damage to test equipment, the sheriff announced that the test results had been inconclusive and that exploratory excavation would begin on May 20th. 
In the meantime, Charles Tex Watson had commented publicly that no one was killed at the desert camp during the month and a half he was there, after the Tate-LaBianca murders. On May 21st, after two days of work, the sheriff brought the search to an end. Four potential grave sites had been dug up and had been found to hold no human remains. William Gerritsen, once the young caretaker at 1050 Ciela Drive, indicated in a program, The Last Days of Sharon Tate, broadcast on July 25, 1999 on E!, that he had, in fact, seen and heard a portion of the Tate murders from his location on the property's guest house. This corroborated the unofficial results of the polygraph examination that had been given to Gerritsen on August 10, 1969, and that had effectively eliminated him as a suspect. The LAPD officers who conducted the examination had concluded Gerritsen was clean on participation in the crimes, but muddy as to his having heard anything. Gerritsen did not explain why he withheld his knowledge of the events. In September of 2009, the History Channel broadcast a docudrama covering the family's activities and murders as part of its coverage of the 40th anniversary of the killings. The program included an in-depth interview with Linda Kasabian, who spoke publicly for the first time since 1989, appearance on A Current Affair, an American television news magazine. Also included in the History Channel's program were interviews with Vincent Bugolsi, Catherine Scher, and Deborah Tate, sister of Sharon. As the 40th anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders approached in July of 2009, Los Angeles Magazine published an oral history in which former family members, law enforcement officers, and others involved with Manson, the arrest, and the trials offered their recollection of and observations on the events that made Manson notorious. In the article, Juan Flynn, a Spahn Ranch worker who had become associated with Manson and the family, said, quote, Charles Manson got away with everything. People will say he's in jail, but Charlie is exactly where he wants to be, unquote. In the 1980s, Charles Manson gave four interviews to the mainstream media. The first, recorded at California Medical Facility, aired on June 13, 1981, was by Tom Snyder for NBC's The Tomorrow Show. The second, recorded at San Quentin State Prison and aired on March 7, 1986, was by Charlie Rose for CBS's News Nightwatch, and it won the National News Emmy Award for Best Interview in 1987. The third, with Geraldo Rivera in 1988, was part of the journalist's primetime special on Satanism. At least as early as the Snyder interview, Manson's forehead bore a swastika in the spot where the X carved during his trial had been. Nicholas Schreck conducted an interview with Manson for his documentary, Charles Manson Superstar, in 1989. Schreck concluded that Manson was not insane, but merely acting that way out of frustration. 
On September 25, 1984, Manson was imprisoned in the California Medical Facility at Vacaville when inmate Jan Holstrom poured paint thinner on him and set him on fire, causing second and third degree burns on over 20% of his body. Holmstrom explained that Manson had objected to his Hare Krishna chants and verbally threatened him. After 1989, Manson was housed in the Protective Housing Unit at California State Prison in Cochrane in Kings County. The unit houses inmates whose safety would be endangered by general population housing. He has also been housed at San Quentin State Prison, California Medical Facility at Vacaville, Folsom State Prison, and Pelican Bay State Prison. In June of 1997, a prison disciplinary committee found that Manson had been trafficking drugs. That August, he was moved from Cochrane State Prison to Pelican Bay Prison. On September 5, 2007, MSNBC aired The Mind of Manson, a complete version of a 1987 interview at California San Quentin State Prison. The footage of the, quote, unshackled, unapologetic, and unruly Manson had been considered so unbelievable that only seven minutes of it had originally been broadcast on the Today Show, for which it had been recorded. In March of 2009, a photograph of Manson showing a receding hairline, grizzled gray beard and hair, and the swastika tattoo still prominent on his forehead was released to the public by California corrections officials. In 2010, the Los Angeles Times reported that Manson was caught with a cell phone in 2009 and had contacted people in California, New Jersey, Florida, and British Columbia. A spokesperson for the California Department of Corrections stated that it was not known if Manson had used the phone for a criminal purpose. Manson also recorded an album of acoustic pop songs with additional production by Henry Rollins. Titled Completion, only five copies were pressed. Two belong to Rollins, while the other three are presumed to have been with Manson. The album remains unreleased. In 2009, a Los Angeles disc jockey and songwriter named Matthew Roberts released correspondence and other evidence indicating that he might be Manson's biological son. Roberts' biological mother claims to have been a member of the Manson family who left in mid-1967 after being raped by Manson. She returned to her parents' home to complete the pregnancy and gave birth on March 22, 1968, and then put Roberts up for adoption. Manson himself stated that he could be the father, acknowledging the biological mother and a sexual relationship with her during 1967, nearly two years before the family began its murderous phase. A DNA test between Matthew Roberts and Manson's known biological grandson, Jason Freeman, was conducted by CNN in 2012, showing that Roberts and Freeman did not share DNA. Roberts' subsequent attempts to establish that Manson is his father have not been successful. In 2014, it was announced that the imprisoned Manson was engaged to a 26-year-old Afton Elaine Starr Burton and had obtained a marriage license on November 7th. Manson personally dubbed Burton with the name, quote, Starr. She had been visiting Manson in prison for the last nine years and maintained a website that proclaimed his innocence. The wedding license expired on February 5th, 2015 without a marriage ceremony taking place. 
It was later reported, according to journalist Daniel Simone, that the wedding was canceled after it was discovered that Burton only wanted to marry Manson so she and a friend, Craig Greywolf Hammond, could use his corpse as a tourist attraction after his death. According to Simone, Manson believed he would never die and may simply have used the possibility of marriage as a way to encourage Burton and Hammond to continue visiting him and bringing him gifts. Together with co-author Heidi Jordan Lay, and with the assistance of some of Manson's fellow prisoners, Simone wrote a book about Manson and was seeking a publisher for it. Burton said on her website that the reason the marriage did not take place was merely logistical. Manson was suffering from an infection and had been in prison medical facility for two months and could not receive visitors. She said she still hoped the marriage license would be renewed and the marriage would take place. On April 11, 2012, Manson was denied release at his 12th parole hearing, which he did not attend. After his March 27, 1997 parole hearing, Manson refused to attend any of his later hearings. The panel at the hearing noted that Manson had, quote, history of controlling behavior and, quote, mental health issues, including schizophrenia and paranoid delusional disorder, and that he was too great a danger to be released. The panel also noted that Manson had received 108 rules violation reports, had no indication of remorse, no insight into the causative factors of the crimes, lacked understanding of the magnitude of the crimes, had an exceptional callous disregard for human suffering, and had no parole plans. At the April 11, 2012 parole hearing, it was determined that Manson would not be reconsidered for parole for another 15 years, not before 2027, at which time he would have been 92 years old. On January 1, 2017, Manson was suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding at California State Prison at Cochrane. When he was rushed to Mercy Hospital in downtown Bakersfield, a source told the Los Angeles Times that Manson was seriously ill, and TMZ reported the doctors considered him too weak for surgery. He was returned to prison on January 6th, and whatever treatment he had received was not disclosed. On November 15, 2017, a source not authorized to speak on behalf of the Corrections Department confirmed that Manson had been returned to a hospital in Bakersfield. In compliance with federal and state medical privacy laws, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation did not confirm this. He died from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer at the hospital four days later on November 19th. He was 83 years old. Three people stated their intention to claim Manson's estate and body. Manson's grandson, Jason Freeman, stated his intent to take possession of Manson's remains and personal effects. Michael Channels, a pen pal of Manson, has a will dated February 14, 2002 that leaves Manson's entire estate plus his body to him. A friend of Manson's, Ben Gericki, had a will dated January 2017. It gives the estate and Manson's body to his alleged son, Matthew Roberts. In 2012, CNN News ran a DNA match to see if Freeman and Roberts were related to each other and found that they were not. Matches between Roberts and Manson were attempted, but the results were reportedly, quote, contaminated. On March 12, 2018, the Kern County Superior Court in California decided in favor of Freeman in regards to Manson's body. 
Freeman had previously said that he would have Manson cremated, and did so on March 20th of 2018. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetrucker slash. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers Podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com slash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.